The question we are asking this morning is, what does it mean to be a person of great faith? It is a question that I believe every Christian should be able to answer. And if you aren't sure how to answer it, the best place to always start is the dictionary. And you can go there and look up the word faith. And if you go to the new Oxford American Dictionary, the first definition is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. The second definition is strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. I have found that most religious folks define faith by the second definition. Spiritual apprehension based on, or based, uh, I'm sorry, strong belief in God or in doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. Now, when I think about the different doctrines of the church, one doctrine comes to mind in particular that demonstrates this definition of faith. That would be the doctrine of creation. I grew up in a church that touted that you had to believe in a 6,000-year-old creation, in that all of the universe was created just 6,000 years ago and not billions of years ago. Now, you may ask where a church gets this idea from, and the answer is the 17th century, specifically from a man named James Usher, who is not related to the voice from the judge on TV. Now, James Usher, in 1650, wrote, I'm not, my Latin's terrible, Annales Veteris Testamenti, which means Annals of God's Testament. And in this book, he disclosed to the world that he knew when the world was created from the very first moment. It was Sunday, October 23, 4004 BCE. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Now, you may ask, what science did this man study in order to come to this exact pinpointed moment when creation began? And he would say, I studied from the most scientific source reliable, the Holy Bible. He went through and counted all of the dates, did a whole bunch of math that is beyond even what I would want to do. And he looked at all of it and he said, Sunday, October 23, 4004 BCE. Now, there were several Christians in the 17th century that believed this, and there are several Christians who believe this today. But not all people believe that the earth was only 6,000 years old. If we fast forward a few years to the 1950s in Chicago, we meet a man named Claire Cameron Patterson, who was obsessed with figuring out how old the earth was. And Claire Cameron Patterson had a laboratory, and he said, I think I can figure out how old the earth is if I look closely at lead and then start dating it and work my way backwards to the age of the earth. So Claire Cameron Patterson started running a bunch of tests, but he kept finding that there was a bunch of lead that kept contaminating his samples. And he would get frustrated because he'd get close to the answer, but it was too unreliable because of all the lead contamination. In the middle of all of these experiments, he got a call from Pasadena, California in the 1950s, and they said, Claire Cameron Patterson, we want you to come to Pasadena and we'll let you build your own lab from scratch, and you can do whatever research you want. And he said, well, I want to find out how old the earth is. They said, great, build your own lab. So he designed it from scratch to make sure that lead would not get contaminated in the samples. And once he built that laboratory, he then went to Arizona, collected a sample of the Canyon de Lablo meteorite, and then brought it back to Pasadena, and he studied the lead isotopic data. These are all things that mean nothing to me, by the way. <laughs> and looking closely at the lead isotopic data, he came up with the solution that the Earth 
was 4.5 billion years old, plus or minus 70 million years. And what's crazy is this was discovered in 1956, and scientists have not changed this number much today. All the advancements have not made this number slide much either way in, from what Claire Cameron Patterson discovered with his laboratory in 1956. So we live in a world where the church is telling us the earth is 6,000 years old and the scientists are telling us that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. And if you're like me, growing up in the church, you went to the church, you said, hey, is there any science that proves that the earth is 6,000 years old? And the church will happily point you to some science that's kind of shaky at best, right? And when you point that out, the church will respond with something along the lines of, well, you just have to have faith. Like, I understand, Craig, that you can be seduced by the science, but we have something greater than science. We have the Bible, and the Bible tells us with very specific accuracy that the world was created in 4004 BCE. Well, in that same book, there is a writing about the skies, and it's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It's Psalm 19. We read Psalm 40. We'll get to that in a minute. But Psalm 19, the psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays God's handiwork. So in other words, the psalmist believes that everything we see in the sky is a testament to who God is. So let's go with that, shall we? This is the sun, which is the closest star to our planet. Does anyone here know how far away the sun is from the earth? 52 million miles. It's a little more than that. 93, 93 million miles is correct. Does anybody here know the speed of light? 186,000. You got that one right. 186,000 <laughs> miles per second. Excellent. Now, does anybody know in terms of light minutes how far away the sun is away from the earth? Eight. Eight is correct. In other words, the light that we experience outside from the sun is eight minutes old. It took this light that long to travel 93 million miles to our earth. Now, scientists have told us that they expect the sun to blow up in about 4.5 billion years. So keep that in mind because when the sun blows up, we won't know about it for eight minutes. And then we'll know about it if you get what I'm saying. <laughs> Now, to give you some more perspective on how all of this works, Saturn, which is the second most beautiful planet in all of the solar system, it's about 746 miles away. And if you gaze in a telescope upon Saturn, you aren't seeing Saturn as it is now. You are seeing Saturn as it was one hour ago. So in other words, a way to talk about the distance between us and Saturn is one light hour away from us. Does anybody here know what the nearest star to us is other than the sun? Alpha Centauri, very good. Alpha Centauri is four light years away. So when we look up at Alpha Centauri, we are looking at that star as it was in 2019. And it took that light all that time to travel four light years so that it could land on our retina and be perceived by something else. Now, a really fascinating thing that's in the cosmos is this. This is called the Crab Nebula. And this is of particular interest to people who believe in a young creation. The reason for this is the Crab Nebula is 6,523 light years away. And if you think about a 6,000-year-old universe, this should be the outer edge of the universe, right? Because the light traveled 6,000 light years to hit our eyeballs, which means it's from the very beginning of time. So we could take a drawing and take a string, a very long string, and take it from the Earth to the Crab Nebula, draw a circle around the Earth, and we should have the edges of the known universe, right? 
And if we think about who God is and if God wants us so adamantly to believe in a 6,000-year-old earth, we can think about God this way. If God wanted humanity to believe in a 6,000-year-old universe, then the Crab Nebula should be the furthest celestial object that humanity could see, right? That would make sense. There's just one problem. This is the Earth's the Crab Nebula in perspective of our local galaxy, the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is 120,000 light years in diameter. If that wasn't enough, the Milky Way is just one of 200 billion galaxies in the universe in 2015. I say in 2015 because that changed, because NASA said, hey guys, we've been telling you 200 billion galaxies for a while. We were wrong. There's actually two trillion galaxies in the known universe. If we went to bed one night in October thinking, oh yeah, there's 200 billion galaxies in the universe, and then we woke up the next day and it was 10 times bigger than we thought before. Now, to give you a perspective on this, the nearest galaxy to us is Andromeda Galaxy, which you can see with the naked eye. It's our galaxy neighbor, and it is a long ways away, but it's also the closest galaxy. It is over 2 million light years away, and when we look up in the sky, the light that is hitting our eye is over 2 million years old. And then just a few months ago, things got real crazy when NASA said, we found it. We have a new champion. We have found the furthest star in the solar system, or in the universe, not the solar system, that's totally wrong. Uh, in this universe, we have found it, and we've named it Irondale. And Irondale is 28 billion light years away. Now, this broke my brain because I know that scientists tell us that the universe is only 13 billion years old, so how do we get light that is 28 billion light years away? And it has to do with Hubble uh, scope as well as light coming from the star while the star is drifting away. It's very complicated, but scientists were very certain about all of this. And when I look at this in Irondale, and the furthest star that we have, according to NASA, that we can see, it reminds me of a great piece of art known as the Book of Mormon. Now, yes, yes, you did not take your parents to this, I'm guessing. <laughs> the Book of Mormon is a great play for you to go without your parents or for you as parents to leave the kids home at. It does not work if you cross generations, my friends. And the Book of Mormon is written by the creators of South Park, and it's about Mormons going out into the world and with their faith, with their adamant beliefs, and encountering the world with its real-life problems. And one of my favorite songs in this whole play it's called I Believe, and it's sung by the main character, Elder Price. And when he has the choice to either change what he believes and adapt to the world that is in front of him, or double down on faith and deny the world around him, Elder Price says, I'm doubling down. And there's this big anthem, and the chorus is, I am a Mormon, and dang it, a Mormon just believes, right? This is what he sings at the top of his lungs. And when I see all of this and I think about who I was as a Christian believing in the 6,000-year-old universe, I remember I would deny stuff like this and I would say, you know what, I am a Christian and dang it, a Christian just believes. <laughs> and the church, the way the church has explained this when a church believes in a young universe is the church has said, well, we know the universe looks bigger than it actually is because God, when God created starlight on the fourth day of creation, God made the stars old, which is why we can see old light rather than light that is newer and actually from the star. Now, this raises an important question for us to ask because when we read Psalms and it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky displays God's handiwork, we also read or hear about this God who creates deceptive light that doesn't reflect reality. 
So which raises the question, what kind of God would try to trick us by making the stars old? If God really wanted us to believe in a 6,000-year-old universe, we would just have a light year or a, a universe that is much smaller than the universe that we have now. Now, what's interesting is Christianity has prioritized or celebrated people who believe things that are unprovable. We have this idea that great faith is the ability to believe in unprovable things. And when we look at our place in the solar system, I have to tell you, this has to change. And if you want to know why it has to change, I have to bring in some of my friends who I have a bit of a hard time understanding. These friends are the flat earthers, right? <laughs> Let me ask you something. If somebody tells you, I believe in a flat earth, and you say, really? What about all the pictures? They're like, what do we mean pictures? Look at, the, look at the ground in front of us. Is it flat or is it round? And you're like, well, it's perceived to be round. And they're like, see, it's a flat earth. When they say that, the question I want you to ask is, is unwavering belief in a flat earth what great faith looks like? No, it's not. Anyone who says I'm a person of great faith because I believe in a flat earth is out to lunch. And I have an idea of what this means. Or I, I've invented something that helps us filter through this. It's called the definition of faith, flat earth, corollary truth, or defect, right? This is any time a definition of faith categorizes flat earthers as people of great faith, then that definition of faith needs to change. Because believing in a flat earth does not make you have great faith. Faith is so much more than that. And anytime you come up with a definition, say to yourself, okay, if I apply this definition of faith to a flat earther, are they a person of great faith? And if the answer is yes, then you need to let that definition go. And if the answer is no, then you may be onto something great. Now, I'm going to share with you my definition of faith and what it means to have great faith, and you may disagree with it, and that's totally fine. We welcome disagreement here. We welcome discussion here at Paradox, and I have just found that this definition works for me when I'm trying to understand what it means to be a person of great faith. Faith, for me, is what one trusts about the character of God. That's what I have found faith to truly be. Now, if you're atheist or agnostic, welcome. We're glad that you are here. If I was speaking to you one-on-one, -on -one, I would give you a bit of a different definition of faith. I would say that faith is what one trusts about the character of God, or faith is what one trusts about the nature of reality. If you believe that there is something better than making as much money as possible, at some point you are stepping out in faith. Case in point, look at those verses that we read earlier, like from Isaiah. Isaiah says, I, God, have called you to serve the cause of right. I have taken you by the hand and I watch over you. I have appointed you to be a covenant people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, and those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. There's something more important than becoming rich and powerful. And the way of God is to help free captives from prison, not put more captives into prison, United States of America. And so we look at that and we say, oh, I trust that God wants us to release people from prison more than put people away. Amen. I am stepping out in faith because I trust that about the character of God. Amen. We also read from 1 Corinthians, which is written by Paul. Paul had a lot of bad luck, as in he wasn't very good at his job for a long time, right? <laughs> he got run out of towns. He got run out of religious institutions. People tried to kill him. And think he had failure after failure after failure until he got to Corinth. 
And he had like his first remote model of success while he was in Corinth, Greece. A few years later, he wrote a letter back then because even his successful church started to sour from the inside. And he wrote to encourage them, and he wrote to them a statement of faith. This was a guy who had been beaten down and had been weary and had lost hope in a lot of things. And he says, I want to tell you who I know God to be. I know that God, in your weariness, Church of Corinth, will strengthen you to the end. And if you trust that about God, you will be stepping out in faith and you will find that you will be growing stronger, even though you feel like there is of no point in going on. Now, we didn't read this next passage, but in my opinion, it's probably one of the biggest faith statements in the entire Bible. It was said by Jesus Christ in a sermon on the side of a mountain. He told the people who were listening, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This will prove that you are children of God. You want to talk about faith. It's trusting the character of God that it's worthwhile to love those who try to tear you down. That is great faith. And faith is what we trust about the character of God or what we trust about the nature of reality. If you're atheist or agnostic and you say, you know, it's worthwhile to learn how to love my enemies because they're people too, that is just as great a faith as a Christian who believes it's because they're a child of God. Amen. Now, what's important to recognize with these de definitions is we've been talking about great faith. These definitions also make room for the opposite to be true. These definitions mean a person of terrible faith can exist, right? If you believe that the character of God is one of anger, judgment, pettiness, homophobia, then you will find that you are a person of terrible faith because you will be judgmental, suspicious, discriminatory, and angry all the time. So there is good faith, there is great faith, and there is terrible faith. And we have to talk about people who are people of terrible faith in the same way we talk about people who are people of great faith. We have to acknowledge these things exist. And just because somebody comes along spouting Bible verses does not mean they are a person of great faith. It means that they are a person of faith, but it might be a person of terrible faith. I point all of this out because we just read Psalm chapter 40, and it is one of my favorite psalms in the entire Bible. It is a psalm about what it means to be a person of great faith. The psalmist writes, unyielding, I call to you, Yahweh. Now at last you have stooped to me and answered my cry for help. Think for a moment about the faith that is being expressed in here. Think about your own life and how you relate to prayers. For me, when I hear that, I think about my own testimony, which is I spend time in silent contemplation because I trust God will be found in the stillness of our busy world. And the psalmist doesn't say, hey, pray for it and you shall receive. The psalmist says, oh, it took forever. I kept asking God and finally I got something worthwhile out of all that prayer time. That sounds like silent contemplation to me. That sounds like the prayer that I know. And so I don't feel so alone when I read the scriptures. We keep reading, you have pulled me out of the pit of destruction, out of its mud and quicksand. You set my feet on a rock and made my steps firm. Have you ever felt like giving up? 
Have you ever felt like you are in the pit of destruction? Have you ever felt like maybe it's not worth going on in this current path? Well, you think about what the psalmist writes. And the psalmist talks about this from a statement of faith. Today is hard, he says, but I have hope that tomorrow will be better because I trust that God will not allow this hardship to define my life. And I know it can be difficult to keep going some days, but ultimately a person of faith is willing to start saying, you know what, I don't think that God will let this define me. Amen. And they continue to try, continue to step forward. This next verse is difficult for all of my brothers and sisters and siblings who have struggled with depression just like me. This words, our happiness comes to those who put their trust in Yahweh instead of in human egos or people blind to the truth. The reason this is hard for us is because we have been told that if we prayed just a little bit more, we wouldn't struggle with depression, which my brothers, sisters, siblings, we all know is not the case, right? But look closely at what the psalmist is writing. Because I have to tell you, there's a lot that's happened in the last year. It was about a year ago that I shared with this congregation that I struggle with depression and that I have been on antidepressants. And I go to therapy, and even though I'm on these antidepressants, I still go to therapy. And I had to do all of this because 2021 was really hard for me. And I told this congregation that in 2021, I fell out of love with being a human being. And I set a goal last year to try my best to fall in love with being human again. Well, it's 2023. It's one of the first pictures I took. And while I wouldn't say it's a stable love with humanity, it's mostly a love with humanity once again. And I am so grateful for all of the time my therapist has sat with me to help me love being human again. I am grateful for all the time my primary care doctor has sat with me to help me get on the right pill. I am so grateful for all of the people who have exercised with me because I kept getting told that rigorous exercise is the best way to boost your mood. I did all of these things, and I will tell you, it was not a linear path. It was very much an up and down, and it felt like I was going backwards. I did all of this over and over again because I wanted to be better, and I believed it was possible to live with this in a healthy way. I prioritize my mental health because I trust that God created a world where happiness is possible. Amen. And I kept going back, and I know other people here who have struggled with depression who keep going back because they too trust the character of God. And they too trust that they can find happiness in the midst of this world that is sometimes feels very unhappy. The psalmist writes, how many wonders you've worked for us, Yahweh, my God. How many plans you've made for us. You have no equal. I want to recount these wonders again and again, but their number is too great. Now, most of us here are in Redlands, California. We have some people watching online. Wherever you live, God is present. And if you can't find God right outside your door, you're probably not going to find God anywhere. But here in Redlands, there are wonders to behold, and I'm sure there are wonders to behold in random places like McAllen, Texas, right? And you walk outside your door, and you see just the beauty of what Redlands is, and you say, I get to live here? This is amazing. Not only that, but we're just a few hours away from Mammoth Lakes, California. I took this picture just a few days ago, and then I just got back from Carefree, Arizona, on a week-long uh, executive skills class for pastors, and I absolutely fell in love with this place. So much so that you may notice this telephone pole here is actually a cactus. 
and it is towering over the house next to it is a saguaro cactus, and they are a wonder to behold. I have to tell you that I keep exploring because I trust that God has filled this world with wonder. There is more to discover because God has given us so generously this world. The psalmist says, you don't desire sacrifice or oblation. Instead, you made my ears receptive to you. You ask no burnt offering or sacrifice for sins for me. Have you looked in the mirror and thought, not good enough? Have you looked in the mirror and been hard on yourself? This passage here tells us about the faith of accepting what looks back at us in the mirror. I believe it takes faith to say this, but I think it's worthwhile to say it out loud. I accept myself because I trust that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. God already loves me to God's fullest capacity. And I, in the way that I am created, is made in God's image, no matter what I look like on the inside or on the outside. And so I declare, the psalmist says, here I am, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written about me. This was the person who was just struggling with self-acceptance just a moment ago. And now this person comes confidently before God, and I love the parallel or the paradox of humble confidence. To be able to stand before God and approach my life with humble confidence fully because I trust God created others in me with a voice that matters. That you were created with a purpose. I desire to do your will, the psalmist writes, my God, and your law is written in my heart. I've heard a lot of Christians worry that they aren't doing the will of God. My friends, it is very easy to figure out what the will of God is in your life. It's very easy because you can always go back to what it is that you trust about the character of God. My chief desire in life is to become a more loving person because I trust the will of God is built on a foundation of love. I can always go back to that and remind myself that it may look different in different situations, but the will of God is built on a foundation of love. The psalmist says, I'll proclaim your justice in the great assembly, and I won't keep my mouth shut as you well know. And justice can sometimes make people really uncomfortable. And yet, if faith, you can step up, speak out, speak up, and you can say, I speak up for justice even when it makes others uncomfortable because I trust that God is working toward righteousness. And I have never, the psalmist writes, kept your generosity to myself but announced your faithfulness and saving action. I have made no secret of your love and faithfulness in the great assembly. And there is this trust that God is ultimately a generous generous being and it impacts who you are and how you interact with others. In other words, if you're a person of faith and you trust the generosity of God, you would say, I give my life, my money, and my possessions generously away because I trust that God has given me so much more than I need. So my friends, the question I want to ask you this morning is, what do you trust about the character of God? Because that is what determines whether your faith is one that is great or one that is terrible. And how do you live your life out in that trust? And no matter what you believe, I want you to know that it it does not matter what it is that you believe, you can become a person of great faith. I want to close with a story about a person who is a person of great faith. We are celebrating him this weekend across the nation. I'm talking about the Reverend Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. Back in 1950s, specifically I believe it was 56, he told a sermon in Montgomery, Alabama. It was in the middle of the bus boycott. 
Uh, and the bus boycott, just to remind you, is shortly after Rosa Parks stood up for justice, more likely sat down for justice. She uh, refused to go back to the segregated parts of the bus. It was in that moment that the people, the African-American people of Montgomery, boycotted the buses around Montgomery and caused all sorts of what John Lewis refers to as good trouble. Now, Martin Luther King, in this sermon called God is Able, he told the story where he said, for 20 plus years of my life, I didn't have many inconveniences. Everything was fine, everything was good, and I believed in the goodness of humanity. And then I participated in a group of people that just said, we're not gonna ride the bus. That's all, that's all we did. And all of a sudden, the worst of humanity came out and showed me something that I did not know existed in humanity. He told stories about phone calls he received that called him racial slurs. He told stories about threats on his life. And he took it all in stride until there was one phone call that threatened his life and his family that he said he couldn't take it anymore. And he said he hung up the phone from this person who had threatened his life, who had called him horrible names, and he just felt overwhelmed by it all. He recognized that he couldn't do it alone anymore. And so the reverend began to pray. And he remembers his prayer in this sermon. The prayer that he prayed to God was, I am here, God, taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength or courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers, God. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. Now, Dr. King tells a story where when he said amen and he admitted that he could not fix this anymore, and he was honest with himself, that he felt a voice begin to speak back to him. And that voice said to him, Martin, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Now, the way he describes upon hearing those words in his head was this. He said, I all of a sudden felt a calm presence of the divine near me. And after I felt that calm presence, I thought, okay, I can't do this alone, but I will not be alone as I go forward. And then in the sermon, he says, three nights later, our home was bombed. Now, I don't know about you, but if your home was bombed, how would you react to that instance? How would you react to that moment? Because if you're like me, you'd be like, let's go tell the police and make sure this guy gets arrested and held to the full letter of the law. And if the police didn't find this person in a month, I would be like, that's it. Let's start building bombs and get some people back. <laughs> but this is not who Martin Luther King Jr. was. Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know what? Strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. What does that take? Great faith. He trusted the character of God, which is not a character of vengeance, but a character of peace that transcends violence. He goes on to say, my experience with God had given me a new strength and a new trust. I know now that God is able to give us the interior resources to face the storms and problems of life. My friends, this is great faith. And it is faith that is trusting the character of God in radical ways. And while it is sobering for me to think that Martin Luther King was assassinated at the age I am now, 39, I still will celebrate this person of great faith who repeatedly trusted the character of God in a way that made all of us better. Amen. 
So my friends, what do you trust about the character of God? Think about that this week, and may that trust make you a person of great faith. And may you become a more loving, kind, generous,